Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. The throne was in danger. The church was in danger. The very state of Russia itself. No revolutionary or foreign missionary had done what Rasputin had done. The imperial family was stained. A vestige of the Dark Ages had risen up and taken the Tsar of Russia into his hands. That was the message that thundered out into the Russian parliament, the Duma, on March 8th of 1912. The speaker, Alexander Gukov, was a politician who had been working to reform the Russian government since the revolution of 1905. Now he was taking direct aim at the Tsar, and Nicholas took it personally. After all, this speech was an open defiance of his power. And in a time when the press and the church and even the supporters of the empire had gone against the crown, this was a new low. The government that Nicholas had tried to control was now openly questioning his God-given authority— They were undermining him in the very halls of government itself. It stung all the more because it was the final exclamation point on a process that Nicholas had begun himself when he met with the president of the Duma, Mikhail Rodzienko. A few months before, Nicholas had met with Rodzienko in the wake of the secret police attacking the press. They had discussed Rasputin's place at court. They talked over the deeply disturbing things that people had observed about Rasputin's behavior. Rodzienko had even read Nicholas' letters from the mothers of women who had fallen into Grigori's clutches. Rodzienko told the Tsar that the attempts to shut down the press were backfiring. The more Nicholas tried to silence the outrage, the more Russian readers thought that Rasputin's evil influence was controlling the throne. While Rodzienko talked, Nicholas smoked. He nervously lit one cigarette after another, feverishly puffing and then throwing them on the ground. When the president of the Duma was done, Nicholas thanked the man. He was grateful for Rodzienko's honesty, he said. In the following days, Nicholas was quiet. People around him saw that he was mulling something over. A few days later, a sheaf of documents arrived on Rodzienko's desk. Nicholas had ordered that all the investigations on Rasputin be sent to him. Nicholas wanted Rodzienko to continue gathering evidence, as long as he did it quietly. But that's where the president of the Duma violated the trust of the Tsar. 
because he brought in his political allies like Alexander Gukov. He showed them the reports and told them that together they would save the emperor and Russia. They compiled a complete report, a profile of Rasputin more comprehensive than anything yet put to the page. And then they sent it to Nicholas and waited. They were greeted with only silence, a silence that was broken by Gukov's speech to the Duma. But if Gukov and Rodzienko thought that shouting against the Tsar in Parliament would finally make Nicholas turn back, they were badly mistaken. In fact, Gukov's speech was a turning point in the relationship between the Duma and the Romanovs. To Nicholas, it was a breach of trust. He had asked for secrecy and instead was openly attacked. Alexandra sent men to seize back the documents that Nicholas had sent to Rodzienko. This wasn't just political now. It was personal. And from that, there was no going back. The delicate stitching that held the young constitutional government together was beginning to unravel. This is Unobscured. I'm Aaron Mankey. They retreated again. After all, it was their habit to do so. Nicholas and Alexandra didn't stay in the capital. Instead, they went looking for places to rest their heads and to leave behind the troubles of ruling Russia. In 1909, when they were threatened all the way across the North Sea in England, it didn't seem like things could get worse. But that was before Prime Minister Stoilipin was assassinated. Iliador battled the Tsar and betrayed Rasputin, the press churned into high gear, and members of the Duma threw it all in their face. So, as always, it was time to get away. Following Rasputin's advice, they went looking for places of natural beauty and peaceful wilderness. They even found places where they wouldn't be recognized, places where they could step in and out of local shops without the owners falling to their knees. But as always, it seemed that no matter where the Romanovs went, trouble would follow. That shadow over the family only darkened on their holiday in 1912. And the trouble they ran into that year? It would be a decisive moment for one small struggle that had recently grown into a major headache. Their choice to befriend Grigory Rasputin. In fact, the trouble, and what followed, came to be known as a miraculous event. It became a story that has grown in its retelling down the years. The thing is, there was something of a miracle about it from the very beginning— at least for Grigory's bond with Nicholas and Alexandra. One of the crucial moments when the relationship between the Romanovs and Rasputin was sealed, and their path into the future was written. It started ordinarily enough, but as we know, even ordinary pastimes were riddled with danger for the emperor's son, little Alexei Romanov. And this jaunt through the Polish countryside was no different, but he had let his guard down. Because since 1907, Alexei had been remarkably healthy— in fact, the family had stopped holding their breath. They still took precautions, for sure, but it seemed like maybe they had learned to manage their little boy's chronic illness. Here's Helen Rappaport to tell us what happened next. In the autumn of 1912, the Romanovs went off to one of, on, on, on a trip to what was Poland. What is Poland now, but was then part of the Russian Empire? The, the, the big forest um, near Białowieża. And they went to one of their big imperial hunting lodges there. And it was while they were staying there that Alexei, Alexei was always very 
<laughs> reluctant to do as he was told and he constantly be told by his minders and he had a couple of minders who were with him all the time not to jump and leap around and risk banging himself which he did one day getting into a boat he jumped into a boat and bashed his hip and it started bleeding in the joints and at the top of his thigh the family leapt into emergency mode it had been a few years since he had been injured this badly but no one had forgotten what to do alexi rested and to their relief recovered the family moved on to a smaller hunting lodge in poland more modest more out of the way but as he got better alexi got more restless he was really getting very fed up with being told by his mother day in day out no you can't do this you can't go off on a bicycle you can't ride a pony you can't go off with the other children you've just had this terrible episode you've got to get well and he was constantly complaining and fed up with not being able to do anything so in the end alexandra took him out for a coach ride maybe alexandra thought this was safe enough she was with her son and he was inside the coach but the road was far from smooth, and Alexei was not as recovered as they all thought, which meant that every bump in the road could send his healing crashing to a halt. And that's just what happened. Let's hear from Douglas Smith. He's jostled about, and this produces a bleeding episode in his leg, and it becomes quite critical. The doctors are fussing over him. They don't know what to do. It's getting worse and worse. The boy is in excruciating pain, which is driving his parents, you know, utterly mad to see their, their beloved son hurting so terribly. Um, it gets to the point where they're about to, you know, have a priest brought in for the last rites. They don't think that, that Alexei is going to survive. So as sort of a last ditch effort, Alexandra sends a cable, a telegram to Rasputin, who's home in, in Siberia for some sort of intercession. And this is the moment when we need to step back just a bit. Because this story becomes a pillar in the legend of Rasputin, as if the only thing keeping Grigory together with the Romanovs was a mystical healing power. If, on the one side, his story is buried under the rumors about Rasputin being the lover of the Russian queen, on the other side, we can also allow stories of his healing power to carry the burden of what we now know. So this is a good point to remember just how important Grigory had been to the royal family down through the years. Because the truth is that Grigory Rasputin had been a close counselor, a spiritual advisor, and a comforting friend to Alexandra for years, and to Nicholas too. Now that much said, when Alexei was injured on the carriage ride, there was so much rumor in the air that we can only think the relationship between the Romanovs and their Siberian friend was delicate and becoming more fragile. After all, when Alexandra reached out to him by telegram, well, it was a last resort. In fact, they were so certain that their little boy would die that they drafted the official notifications of Alexei's death, and Grigory was far, far away from Poland. But when they thought back to that last time that Alexei had been at death's door, they must have remembered that it was under Rasputin's hands and his prayers that the boy had recovered. What else could they credit with Alexei's five years of good health? So if the Russian public thought that Rasputin was out of favor with Alexandra, it seems they got it wrong. All the attacks on Grigory may have soured him in the newspapers, but it never truly split Rasputin and the Romanovs apart. In fact, earlier in the year, at the height of the press attacks, the Romanov family was traveling in Crimea, and Grigory had traveled with them. They had been together through the winter and into the early spring. No matter what the papers said, no matter what the Duma said, Nicholas and Alexandra were adamant. 
they would not be told who they could let through their doors. And any damage to their friendship would have been healed when Grigory answered their telegram from Poland that fall. He was far away, but his words of comfort touched Alexandra's heart. Leaning over the mattress that might be her son's deathbed, Alexandra was frantic with fear. That is, until she read Rasputin's reply. Sent a message back, effectively saying, don't worry, all will be well. The little one will not die. Don't let the doctors fuss around him too much. And um, when she got that message, of course, she calmed down and became, the stress sort of vanished from her face. She came down to dinner the first time in about two weeks and Alexei recovered. This point, this pivotal moment, is easy to understand. Grigory wasn't there. All he did was pray and send a telegram. Did he heal Alexei? Most historians think that the boy was already on the mend. But the important thing is less Alexei's healing itself. It's more about how all this seemed to Alexandra. Because in her eyes, when it came to the life of her beloved son, this was a second miraculous healing. God had spoken. Rasputin had shared the message. All was well. Alexandra now stood on a rock of confidence as an ocean of uncertainty washed around her. Terrible things might arise. Waves of anger, violence, death, accusations, and slander might crash against her place in the world, but the Empress of Russia could now stand unafraid. The man of God would guide her. Rasputin was a household name, not just in Russia, either. By the spring of 1912, the scandal caused by the Duma taking up the issue of Rasputin nesting in the palace had made him the subject of even more rumors and wild stories than the papers could print. The ambassadors of several countries wrote back to their home offices about the mysterious Siberian peasant. Word of the religious fanatic with mysterious hypnotic powers was being inflated and floated into government offices all across Europe. Of course, like most of the trial balloons going up about Grigory, most of these reports were collections of the rumors popular among the Russian aristocracy. But when the Romanovs had gone to Crimea that spring to celebrate Easter, Rasputin also disappeared from St. Petersburg society. But his absence didn't silence the conversation. In fact, the furious speculation about him only got hotter, so much so that the newspapers started commenting on the newspaper coverage as its own story. That March, for example, one article titled Rasputiniana complained that there was no getting rid of the story. It was like eczema, it said. Once a paper caught the bug for publishing about Rasputin, there was no going back. It became an endless flow of Grigori's comings and goings, unless there was no news, in which case it became a perpetual series of guesses about where he might be. After all, Rasputin sold papers, and speculation was a lucrative business. It was like a disease, they wrote. Even though the pages were only paper, it seemed that Rasputin had gone viral. And not everyone was happy about that, especially because it all seemed to backfire. If the original idea had been to shock the conscience of the nation and of the Romanovs, the opposite had happened. All these headlines about the wandering holy man only seemed to desensitize everyone to the whole affair. The newfound freedom of the press was teaching the newspapers a hard new lesson. If you yell loud and long enough, you get tuned out. To be a spectacle, the news has to stay new. Of course, there was a grain of truth to all the reporting. Grigory was going here and there. He traveled constantly, from Siberia to St. Petersburg to Crimea, where he spent time with Nicholas and Alexandra, back to his home then in Siberia. But if the papers were chasing rumors, 
the secret police were tracking the man himself. Police surveillance reports included Rasputin spottings whenever he would arrive in the capital. After all, he wasn't just newsworthy. Over the past few years, he had become the most infamous man in all of Russia. And as a close confidant of the Tsar, that made him a target. If you were against his friendship with the Tsar, well, it also made him a threat. And it probably didn't help that Rasputin seemed less and less like the simple, wide-eyed pilgrim who had first shown up in the capital almost a decade earlier. For years now, he had been living the high life. It left Grigory looking different, too. The papers started to comment on his appearance. By August, one paper was calling his face tormented. The skin was clinging to his bones, and the bones were poking through the skin. Dark circles never faded from around his eyes. Rasputin, it seems, was getting tired. Even his daughter Maria noticed the changes. When he would come home to Siberia, she remembered how much he started to resent the visitors in those years. After so much traveling, he just wanted some peace and quiet. But he had raised his profile too high for that. If it wasn't reporters and investigators coming by to get a read on his most recent events, it was religious seekers. Maria would later say her father got annoyed with them, but it didn't stop a parade of women marching up to their front door looking for the little father and throwing themselves on him, grabbing his hands and kissing the hem of his clothes. She remembers at one point he ripped his hands away from a woman and shouted, I am not your father. I'm not even a monk. But nothing stopped the downright worship. If he wasn't the devil to the people who came prowling at the door, he was a saint. And that's not something you can just shake off. If the newspapers hadn't changed their mind, what could? So when he was home in Siberia, Grigory tried to duck out of sight. He avoided the restaurants and ate at home. He kept to his devotional rituals, which was no meat and no liquor. At least, that's how Maria remembers it. The thing is, that's about as far as you can get from the life he lived when he traveled to St. Petersburg. If his daughters saw one face at home, the Okrana in the capital observed something completely opposite. There, he spent his days and nights out on the town, in company too. He went out with friends, or he made his way to the streets and neighborhoods notorious for prostitution. They followed him as he picked up women and took them down his old paths, to a nearby hotel or to a bathhouse. Sometimes they trailed him as he went from bathhouse to brothel to bathhouse, and he had a new woman on his arm each time. It didn't look at all like the kind of life he tried to live in front of his followers. So if he was starting to look haggard and worn out, well, it wasn't just the scandal and scrutiny that was doing it. Grigori may have been trying to keep the two sides of his life separate, but it's not like he was discreet about it. For whatever reason, he seemed to throw caution to the wind when he was in St. Petersburg and when the Tsar was out of town. In later years, even Maria would admit who her father became in those years. Though, of course, whether the drunken stumble between brothels was something new for him is hard to pin down. It's just that he was finally being watched so much that his habits were no longer hidden. His supporters liked to say that it was the city that had corrupted the Siberian peasant over time. They called his new lifestyle a spiritual catastrophe. Churchmen like Feofan, who had started by embracing Rasputin, told the story this way. Try as they might to displace some kind of blame from Grigory for his choices or to say he didn't used to be so constantly on the prowl, it all seemed a bit too convenient. There may be some truth to it. No doubt Grigory did adapt a bit to his new surroundings. But we can't forget just how much Feofan looked past in those early years— when he thought Grigory could be useful to him. Whispers had followed him from Pokrovsko to Kazan and onward. And in the end, there's no debate about at least one thing. 
if there were neighborhoods in any city where the virtues of the Orthodox Church were left outside, it was Grigory himself who willingly opened that door and crept inside. The crisis was real. The spiritual crisis, that is. Whatever Grigory may have decided about the way he would live his life, he never stopped tormenting himself about the unraveling. The sex and the drunken nights in St. Petersburg were less the cause of a collapse and more the result of one. The real crisis had been working inside him all along. No matter how he was living, Rasputin held on to his own claim to faith. To himself, at least, he was not a fraud or a heretic. He was simply a man of God who sometimes, maybe often, made mistakes. At least that's what he told himself. But if the Romanovs dismissed concerns about Grigory as malicious rumors, others did not. Not the members of the Duma, not the public, and not the Russian church. In fact, there were some who began to suspect that their earlier investigations into his teachings were flawed. In past years, church officials had decided that Rasputin was no heretic. But after all the accusations against him, they decided to look again. In fact, one bishop in the city of Tobolsk, near Rasputin's hometown, took up the subject with some genuine energy. He ordered church investigators to send him monthly reports on Grigory, where he went, what he taught, who he met with. Despite Rasputin being earlier cleared of connections to secret groups of heretics, it was exactly the same question they were trying to answer now. It seems obvious that any church leaders would want to separate themselves from Rasputin as much as possible. But there's a more clear and more personal link to these investigations, too. Because the bishop of Tobolsk was personal friends with someone who had become an enemy of Rasputin, the mad monk Iliador. Not that the investigations immediately produced damning evidence, though. In the spring of 1912, while Grigory was home in Pokrovsko with his family, a priest there followed orders. He sent reports to the nearby bishop. But there wasn't much to say. Grigory went to church. He seemed to be working and supporting his family. All the whispers the priest could gather only said that Grigory was keeping to his prayers. He made short pilgrimages here and there. At home, it seemed like he was the devout and pious peasant his daughter thought he might be. But there was one thing that raised concerns. His followers. In fact, it was one of the women who had been devoted to him the longest, Olga Loktina. Years had passed since she had hosted him in the St. Petersburg salons. And in those years, she had taken to living with the religious teachers she liked the best— Sometimes she was living in the band of followers at Rasputin's house. Sometimes she had been living with another fiery preacher, Iliador. And after the split between Grigory and Iliador, it seems Olga knew where she wanted to be, and so she settled down to live with Rasputin's family. But she ran into some conflict with his wife. Now let's remember that for all these years, when Rasputin was wandering and climbing the ladder of the Russian court, he had a family at home in Siberia. His wife, Praskovia, was often left to fare without her husband, and their children were often without their father. But they made do. And of course, when Grigory bought the new house, brought home the new clothes, and rode in with new patrons and new money, that wasn't nothing. But Praskovia and the Rasputin family knew better than most that his ambitions and visions came with a cost. In some ways, it was a burden that they all had to carry. So when their guest, Olga, started loudly proclaiming that Rasputin ought to be treated as God himself, well, that didn't sit well with his wife. She was the wife of Grigory's younger years. She knew that he was all too human. But Olga didn't appreciate that perspective. And when she didn't let the issue drop, the two women got into a ferocious argument. 
I can only imagine the resigned strength of Praskovia as she had to repeat that no, her wandering husband was a charismatic man, but certainly not the god of the universe. Eventually, Praskovia put her foot down. The fight sent Olga running barefoot from the house, and she disappeared. Over time, news would trickle back that she had begun wandering from monastery to monastery. She was looking for Iliador, and once in a while she even ran across reporters who took down her accounts and published the story of the wealthy St. Petersburg socialite who had fallen from grace, dragged down by the talons of Grigory Rasputin. That was enough to concern the church, not least because even more concerning stories began to come out about how badly Rasputin had treated Olga. Some witnesses said that he had taken to screaming at her, telling her that she was demon-possessed, and even beating her with a shoe. Through it all, she would desperately grab at his clothes and sob that Rasputin was Christ himself. So when a new bishop arrived in Tobolsk that year, one of the things he put on his list was a visit to Pokrovsko and to the home of Grigory Rasputin. It was now his job to care for the people across his region of Siberia, and after reading stacks and stacks of reports on Rasputin, he decided to see this threat to the Russian people for himself. The bishop met directly with Grigory. It was a meeting meant to test Rasputin's religious beliefs. He took a measure of Grigory's hopes and ambitions and considered whether his preaching was strengthening the church. The local priest and other church officials made another search of Rasputin's house, and they questioned the people who knew him, trying to ferret out anything he said that might sound like the heresy they feared. For whatever reason, though, their conclusions left Rasputin off the hook. What kind of a man was Rasputin? The bishop wrote that he was honestly spiritual and that he was searching for the truth. He was intelligent. He was capable of giving good advice to those in need. That fall, he submitted a report to other leaders in Russia's church. The investigations into Grigory Rasputin ought to be condemned, he said. There was no heresy, and in his eyes, Grigory Rasputin was an Orthodox Christian. But if that closed the book on Rasputin for the Russian church, well, we can take a slightly more critical view, looking back from today. Because there are a few things that never made it into the bishop's report. First of all, he had known Rasputin for years, ever since Grigory had made a pilgrimage to Kazan in 1904, and he left that out. Second, the bishop had his own scandals in his wake as he splashed down at the new post in Siberia, whispers that he had been keeping a mistress and fostering fanatical followers of other mystical preachers. And from the outside, the fact that the church ended its scrutiny of Rasputin caused some concern. Reopening the investigation into Grigori's shady life had only made him stronger. What if the two men had cut some kind of a deal? And suspicions only got stronger when a few months later, that bishop was transferred again to the warmer, more hospitable South and was promoted to the fourth highest position in the Orthodox Church. Very different from how Rasputin's enemies were usually treated, removed from authority in the church. Men like Iliador, Germagen, and Theophan. To a public who were now seeing schemes of Rasputin behind every injustice, it seemed that opposing him came with a heavy price. And this was simply one more sign that there was something rotten in the shadow of the Tsar. 300 years. That's how long the Romanovs had ruled Russia. So naturally, the planned festivities were enormous. A 21-cannon salute rang out from the fortress in St. Petersburg, Nicholas himself led a procession from the imperial residence at the Winter Palace to the cathedral. The streets were packed. Crowds cheered wildly as the imperial family approached. 
Inside, even the cathedral was standing room only. Honored guests, government officials, and various foreign ambassadors and dignitaries took special reserve seats to honor the history of the Romanov family and their power. But if the joy and excitement of the occasion was infectious, it didn't catch on with at least one man, Mikhail Rogianko, the president of the Duma. In fact, the day so far had put him in a foul mood. It started with those seats in the cathedral. You see, when he first saw the guest list and how the seating would be arranged, he was irate. The seats assigned to members of the Duma were in the back of the cathedral, behind a host of other functionaries and officials who were closer to the Tsar. So Rodzienko set out to make it right. He hunted down the master of ceremonies and badgered the man until he bent the seating chart to his own will. The Duma members would be moved forward. With that promise secured, he even assigned a number of his sergeants at arms to block off the section and turn away anyone who tried to plant themselves in those seats. Feeling satisfied, Rodzienko took up a place on the porch to wait for the rest of the Duma members to arrive. But it wasn't long before a breathless man rushed up to him. Some scoundrel had fought past his guards and taken a space reserved for the Duma. The sergeants were arguing with him, but the man refused to budge. When he heard the description of the intruder, a ragged man in peasant's dress wearing a pectoral cross, Rodzienko knew who he was dealing with. Rasputin had moved himself to the head of the class. Rodzienko marched inside, but the Grigory Rasputin he found wasn't so ragged at all. On the contrary, he was decked out in all the finery he had received or purchased over the years— a crimson silk tunic, supple leather boots, a coat lined with sable fur, and ebony trousers, all under an enormous cross hanging from an ornate gold chain. Rodzienko let loose. He demanded to know what Grigory thought he was doing there. The peasant would get out, or Rodzienko would drag him out by the beard. The two men locked eyes, and I could only imagine the flashes of fire that burned the air between them. Eventually, Rodzienko told Rasputin to clear the cathedral, there was no place for a vile heretic like him in that sacred house. But Rasputin defended himself by saying that he had been invited there, and he dared Rodzienko to make good on his threats. The president of the Duma? Obliged. He jumped on Rasputin, battered him with blows, and called a Cossack guard to bounce him out the door. At least, that's how Rodzienko remembered it. He wrote it down, too. Then he published it in his memoirs. Ever since, it's a moment that has been told and retold to show just how much bad blood there was between Rasputin and the Russian officials around him. After all, it had the ring of truth. The fine clothes, the men of various parts of Russian life scraping with each other to take pride of place near the Tsar, the bickering that comes to blows and is only settled by Cossack muscle. It's all pitch perfect. If we can believe Rodzienko, that is. The thing is, it seems that in the end, Rasputin did attend the celebrations, and not just at the cathedral. In fact, there were plenty of ways to partake, and it became clear that Rasputin was a guest of the imperial family as the days went by, because they took their party on the road, and they took Grigori with them. Nicholas's sister commented that after everything, it was stunning and even upsetting that Rasputin was now back in plain view, strutting along with the other elites. But after all, this was a celebration of the Tsar's power. And if anyone needed a sign that the Tsar's wishes overruled the will of the people, or anyone else's, this did the trick. Despite all the rumors, despite all the investigations, if the Tsar wanted Grigory Rasputin by his side, then Rasputin was untouchable. After all, Nicholas and Alexander had a point to make. Their advisors had been telling them that Rasputin was a threat to the throne. They warned that revolutionaries like the men who had killed the prime minister were still on the hunt. Rasputin shouldn't be seen with them. 
But then the celebrations themselves were an enormous risk. Advertising their procession from city to city only made it more likely that people discontented with Tsarist rule would turn the pageant into a bloodbath. No such thing occurred, though. And as cheering crowds greeted them along their itinerary, Alexandra mocked the warnings. You can see for yourself, she said. The ministers are cowards. They had tried to scare the emperor with threats of assassinations and revolutionaries. But to her eyes, it was all just as much a veil of lies as the press reports about her and Rasputin. But from where we sit today, we see how misguided Alexandra really was. The future she faced was a dark one. The ministers had been telling her the truth. They were imperiled on every side. If the Romanovs thought that they were loved across their empire, then maybe the biggest lies were the ones they told themselves. And they were far from understanding the people they ground under their feet— Here's Dr. Joshua Sanborn to tell us more. It's hard to know what the relationship between the Tsar and the people were. There are no surveys, there are no polls, there are no, there's no way to really get at this question. And so much of what we have is the representation of the autocracy itself for how it wanted that relationship to be, how it wanted it to look. And they had a lot of resources in order to sort of have that happen. Indeed, in the years building up to World War I, there are a series of, of celebration that sort of, they were intended to heighten this bond between the monarch and the people. And these build up to the tercentenary, the, the 300th anniversary of the Romanov dynasty itself in 1913. And so they have big celebrations that always, always are trying to stress this bond between the Tsar and the people. And when we say big celebrations, we mean big. They filled the streets in St. Petersburg and in Moscow and more. Cathedrals, monasteries, and the Kremlin hosted events in their honor. Nicholas and Alexandra strode across the Red Square, trailed by a Cossack officer carrying their heir, Alexei, in his arms. From city to city, they stamped 300 years of Romanov rule on Russia. But with all of that pomp and pageantry, the question remains, was any of it real? Did it work? Did these celebrations rebuild the bond between the Tsar and the people? Maybe in Moscow. But the Russian Empire was vast, and no matter how far the Tsar traveled with his family and his entourage, he wasn't reaching the hearts of the empire's borders. Far from the parades and the speeches and the tussles between Rasputin and the ministers about who will sit at the Tsar's right hand, other things were brewing. Let's follow Dr. Sanborn to places further from the throne, but no less consequential. The relationship between the Tsar and ethnic Russians and, and, and those on the periphery, um, that is certainly different. And that's going to vary widely depending on where in the Russian Empire you are. So nationalism and anti-Russian nationalism is developing more strongly in certain places than in others, most notably in Poland, but also beginning to develop by the time we get to the 20th century in places like Ukraine and in the Baltic states, and even to a certain extent more broadly into sort of the Asian territories of, of the Russian Empire too. The thing we have to remember is that this relationship is distant. The Tsar always wanted to see this as an intimate relationship, but, but it was a distant one. You know, most people, of course, never saw the Tsar. And, you know, they lived their lives in their local regions, in these local contexts. And in the years leading up to that 300th anniversary, the growing anti-Russian nationalism was driven forward by a self-defeating force. The effort of the Romanov government to make them more Russian. In places where other churches and other languages were outlawed, a growing resentment turned the people against the distant czars. Schools were forced to teach only Russian history, and crackdowns on other languages spread. But it had the opposite of its desired effect. 
ethnic nationalists on the periphery, they had long tried to say, hey, you guys are all Ukrainians. And the Ukrainians would be like, ah, I don't know, I'm kind of a peasant, I'm kind of a Christian. And, and now they're coming along and now they finally have the proof. They're like, see, you're Ukrainians. The state is punishing you for being a Ukrainian. Now they say, oh yeah, now, now I see you mean. Like, I can't go to the church I want to go to. My kids are speaking some weird language when they come home from school with a weird accent. All of that becomes much more concrete for them. And so as a result, Russification, which is intended to, to, to limit the spread of ethnic nationalism, actually helps to develop it, especially in these Western borderlands, Poland, Ukraine, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. But all of that was happening far from where Nicholas was traveling. His parade of stage-managed visits to various sites at the heart of the empire weren't showing him how people really felt about his rule. After all, it was his own government who was putting on the show. There was a problem, though. It wasn't just the Russian people who were hearing the message. It was Nicholas himself. Here's Dr. Sanborn to tell us more. You have these big celebrations and the nobility welcome you and there's crowds of cheering peasants. This is exactly what Nicholas wanted to see. And it's, he's able to convince himself that this is the political reality. And so it's dangerous in a certain way, right? When you when you start using your own product. Uh, but he had always sort of used his own product, right? He, he was always imbuing himself with this notion that he was a popular Russian Tsar and that Tsars don't get their authority by being voted or, or surveyed. But, but it's just this mystical thing. You're born with it. Because whatever the shape of the past they were celebrating, the future that the Romanovs and their empire were facing was about to hit them like a runaway train. Wrapped in the banners of his noble lineage, Nicholas couldn't see that the patchwork empire he'd inherited was about to come apart at the seams. It seemed like he had won. So why did Grigori feel like he was under such a great weight? The so-called miracle that healed Alexei assured him his place alongside the Tsar in the greatest festivities of the age. He had wealth. He had connections. He had a place at the capital. He could indulge his every urge without consequences. But it wasn't enough. Yes, he was making regular visits to the Romanov household. Nicholas and Alexandra still welcomed him. But he was tired. Tired of the constant attention. It had stolen his peace. Tired of the press attacks and rumors, not to mention when the stories bit a little too close to the bone. In the first waves of negative attention, he had ducked out of sight and come back stronger. But he didn't want to spend the rest of his life working the back rooms of church officials and dodging the secret police investigators. He was fed up. Reporters were mobbing his St. Petersburg apartment. They made him nervous. They called him a heretic. They called him a sex maniac. They called him a servant of the Antichrist. There was a time when he would have said that these were nothing more than clouds that wind and sun would scatter, not to mention the Tsar. But he had been rubbing shoulders with Nicholas and Alexander for long enough now that he wondered if maybe there was another way. Maybe he could deal with it all himself. So he sent some messages on his own behalf. One went to the Minister of the Interior. One went to the Chief Procurator of the Holy Synod. Protect him from his enemies, and what he called the abuse in the press. It was the early months of 1914, and Grigory Rasputin was finally throwing his weight around. But if he felt like the accusations and public outrage were getting tiresome, the attacks on Rasputin were about to get a lot more real, and to hit a lot closer to home. Toward the end of spring, Grigory decided to leave the capital behind for some time at home in Siberia. His friends and followers sent him off with good cheer. A little peace, simplicity, and family time, and he would be back as good as new. And it started the way he planned. His first morning in Pokrovsko he spent at church, followed by a large meal with his family. A group of visiting friends even joined him. 
While they were still gathered around the table, though, a knock came at the door. It was a telegram from a photographer asking if he could stop by to take pictures of Grigori's home and family. He quickly scratched out a reply and then ran out the door to catch the messenger, waving the slip and calling out to him. He wanted to be sure the reply went out right away. As he went, though, Rasputin passed someone who was standing at his gate. It was a woman dressed in black. She was like many people he had met before. In fact, as he stood in front of her, she bowed. Assuming she was there to beg, he fumbled with his wallet to see if there was something he could give her. But in that moment while he paused, her hand disappeared into her clothes. And then she dove forward. Suddenly, pain burned across Grigori's stomach. He slapped his hand down over his gut and stumbled backward into a run, yelling that he had been attacked. When he looked back, he could see that she was running after him. She was carrying a large knife, red with his own blood, and she had a deadly look in her eyes. When she reached him again, he was ready. Despite the blood running down his legs, he fought back, and by the time the others came to grab her arms, Grigori had already knocked her down. By now, people were running out of his house, and shouts rang out up and down the crowd that formed along the street. Grigori's wife ran to his side. As she pulled him toward their door, she noticed that he was losing consciousness. And no wonder. By the second, more of his blood caked into the dust. Their friends surrounded him and lay him on a bench. Someone else ran for a doctor. Rasputin had been gutted in the street right in front of his own house. In an instant, he had been sent to death's door. If only a powerful healer could drop in to pray over him, speak to his blood, and call him back from the brink. It would take time for the motives of the attack to become clear, but there were even darker tidings clutched in the hands of the next messengers headed to Pokrovsko. War was on the wind again. Nicholas and Alexandra were calling for their advisor, but he lay elsewhere, stretched out and pale. It seemed that Grigory Rasputin wasn't so untouchable after all. That's it for this week's episode of Unobscured. Stick around after this short sponsor break for a preview of what's in store for next week. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Since every minute counts when you're a new parent, who wants to waste time washing bottles? Transform this daily chore with the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro, the first machine that automatically washes, sterilizes, and dries bottles, pump parts, and sippy cups at the push of a button. Its 20 spray jets clean everything 100%. Plus, it sterilizes with steam, then dries with germ-free air. Don't waste time on tedious hand washing. Let the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro do it for you. 
Shop now at babybrezza.com. He swam back to consciousness. The line of fire burned across his belly where the knife had slashed him open. But Grigory Rasputin's mind was already charging ahead to what came next after the attack and who was behind it. In fact, when he came to, Rasputin told the people around him that he knew who was to blame, the mad monk Iliador. After the two men finally severed their friendship, Grigory must have known it was only a matter of time before one of Iliador's followers would follow his signature command for violence. As time would reveal, Rasputin was right. The woman who had attacked him in the street outside his house was a follower of Iliador's violent teachings. She had even met Rasputin before, when the two teachers were still traveling together. Now, like so many others in Russia, she had come to believe that Rasputin's prophecies were false, and his spirit was polluted with vile habits and selfish ambitions. She believed that it was Rasputin who had turned on Iliador, so she set out to avenge her chosen leader with a 15-inch dagger on a white bone handle. Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Josh Thane, in partnership with iHeartRadio, with research by Sam Alberti, writing by Carl Nellis, and original music by Chad Lawson. Learn more about our contributing historians, source materials, and links to our other shows over at grimandmild.com unobscured. And as always, thanks for listening. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Need an easy button to feed your baby? Baby Bretza's Formula Pro Advanced makes a perfectly mixed warm formula bottle automatically at the push of a button. No air bubbles, no fuss. Literally, choose your temp, select your ounces, push start, and you're done. Works with virtually all formulas and bottles. Say goodbye to the 3 a.m. feeding chaos and hello to this revolutionary stress-free solution. Raising a baby is hard enough. Let Baby Bretza make feeding a breeze. Get your Formula Pro Advanced at babybretza.com.
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 